Hello everyone, hope you're doing well. My name is Andy and this is UFOs and Other Paranormal Stuff. Welcome everyone back to the podcast, especially if you haven't listened before. Um, we are now on Samsung Podcast, which I've never heard of before, so that must be brand new. I would also like to welcome everybody who signed up on the website as well. Uh, it's very kind of you to do so. Don't forget to go to www.ufosandops.com and you can listen to all the episodes in the back catalogue, all the trailers, all the specials everything and you can see uh, Maggie Z's contribution which was put in last week a couple of weeks ago I received a message from one of the members on the uh, website a gentleman called Felix and he has said excuse me I'll have to read from your phone his latest was 2010 Spokane in WA my girlfriend saw it first I looked straight up it was a disc maybe 40 feet up, then it shot forward, and two more went with it, from seeing it to out of sight in seconds. I wonder if anyone else who lives in Spokane or anywhere else in that state uh, may have heard uh, or seen the same sort of thing. If you have, don't forget to get in touch. Uh, contact details are on the website, right down at the bottom of the homepage. I had the pleasure of going to a uh, former colleague of mine's leaving do uh, the other week. Uh, we haven't worked together for a good few years, but uh, we, when we did work together, we were we were really good. It was a really good team in those days. Uh, she sent me a message as well, uh, because at the leaving do, there was a a cappella group that sang her a song, and we all noticed they were getting a little bit emotional. It's a leaving do. Uh, she sent me a message that goes like this. One for you, Andy. There was an a cappella group singing in the pub on Friday, as you saw, and they were persuaded to pop down and sing a song for me. The song they chose was In the Sweet By and By. This is a song that my dad came and sang to me in a dream a few weeks after he passed away. I never told anyone that before. They never leave us. And I think she's right. They never do leave us. And it was a pleasure working with you. It really was. Now, ladies and gentlemen, on to today's episode. Uh, it is about the Isdal woman. Have you ever heard of the Isdal woman? I hadn't either for... Uh, I, th I think actually I first heard about it was a couple of years ago. But this is an incident that has been sort of in or around the news since 1970. And trust me, if you thought that the Somerton Man uh, case was, well, if that was a mystery, you wait till you hear this. One afternoon in late November 1970, a family were out walking in the foothills of Ulrichen, 
one of the highest mountains that surround the city of Bergen in Norway. That area that they were walking in is known as the Isdalen, which it translates into Ice Valley. Many hiking accidents had occurred in the area in the weeks and months preceding the family's hike, but the father really wanted to make sure that his two daughters would be safe whenever they wanted to walk up there in the future, and so took them out on this cold November day. Isdalen was also the location for many suicides in the Middle Ages. During this hike, the family noted an unusual burning smell. Shortly after, one of the daughters found the charred remains of a body located within some rocks. The family decided to return to where they had come from and tell the police. They were fearful that whoever might have done this horrific thing might come after them. And also don't forget this was 1970, no mobile phones in those days. The body that the girl found has become one of the biggest cases of unidentified people in the world. And just like in the case of the Somerton man, the Isdal woman has never been identified. But what happened to her? Did she take her own life? Was there something more supernatural to this person's death? Could spontaneous human combustion be to blame? Was she murdered? Did her demise have something to do with a penguin? Might it have something to do with World War II? The police were called and very quickly launched a full-scale investigation. This was filed by Bergen Police as case name 134-170. The police noted that the woman was lying face up with her clenched hands up by her torso. They also found no evidence of a campfire nearby. Only the front of the woman's body and clothes were burnt, not the back. Her injuries were so much so that she was unrecognisable. Near to the body, the police found an empty bottle of liquor, some plastic water bottles, boots, passport holders, scarf, nylon uh, stockings, a purse, woolly jumper, umbrella, matchbox, earrings, a watch and a ring. Some of those items were affected by the fire. They also found burned paper around the body and underneath the body a fur hat which had traces of petroleum. All of the items had been placed around the body in what you might describe as a ceremonial way. Another strange thing is that all identifying marks and labels had been completely removed from these items. That includes those that would be usually found on the plastic water bottles. That is something that I mentioned in the Tamam Shud episode of this podcast as usually being done by those who work in the clandestine industries or those who want to remain anonymous and untraceable. The next day the police take the body down and into a hospital in Bergen where an autopsy can take place. The press is then contacted by the police the press are told that the body of young woman with dark hair and medium build has been found and ask for anyone who may have seen her to speak to the police. Krepos, the Norwegian National Crime Agency based in the capital city Oslo, team up with the Bergen police force to getting 
a full inquiry into finding the woman's identity underway. They find no matches to the woman's fingerprints and begin a search for more belongings that may yield more evidence. In another similarity to the Summerton man case, it is discovered some days later that the woman had left two suitcases at the nearest National Railway Station in Bergen. The cases had been there for nearly a week by this point, being checked in on the 23rd of November that year. The cases contained shoes, wigs, makeup, cream for eczema, 135 Norwegian kroner, British, Swiss and Belgian coins, some maps, some railway timetables, railway tickets, compass, non-prescription glasses, a notepad and some other cosmetics, sunglasses with a single fingerprint on them that matched those on the body. This fingerprint is the only thing that links the two cases to the dead woman. Something was also found in the lining of one of the suitcases too. Five 100 Deutschmark notes. Again, most of these items had identifying information removed. However, some items still had possible identifiers showing. One was a matchbook from a mail-order erotic underwear company based in Germany, a metal spoon with a logo on it, and a couple of plastic bags, one from a shoe shop in Rome, in Italy, and the other from another shoe shop in Stavanger, in Norway, only 100 miles from Bergen. It was thought that the wigs and the makeup were used by the woman to change her appearance and coupled with the different currencies and items with no labels, suspicion grows that this woman may have been a spy. Remember after all that this is 1970 and the Cold War is ongoing and Russia is not that far away at all from Norway. The notepad that the police found was full of rows of letters and numbers that looked like a huge code. Police could not say for sure that espionage could have been a factor in this case until the code is cracked. So they have to follow the only lead they have so far, the bag from the Stavanger shoe shop. Could the boots found near her burned body have been from that shoe shop? Police in Stavanger visit Rolf Rudvet, the son of Oskar Rudvet, who owned the shop named on the bag. Rolf remembers selling rubber boots to a very well-dressed, nice-looking woman with dark hair. The boots he sold her appeared to match those found near the charred body in Esdalen. Police think that the umbrella found near the body was bought at this shop too. Rolf Rudvet said that the woman made an impression on him as she took long time choosing the boots that she wanted to, uh, to buy, much longer than customers would usually take. He also remembers that she spoke English, but with an accent. He said that she looked different. She didn't have the fair skin and blue eyes that he was used to seeing with people in Stavanger in those days. Remember, Stavanger wasn't a very touristy place back in those days. Another thing that he remembers about her was that she did not smell nice at all. He thinks that she smelled of garlic, which again was not a much seen thing in those parts of Norway 
in those days. At one point, while she was in the shop, the woman started speaking in a language that Rolf did not recognise, possibly French or possibly German. He really didn't know. Stavanger police decided to start searching hotels in the area, and luckily for them, they found the right hotel almost straight away, the St. Swithin Hotel. There, they found that a woman matching the description of the Estelle woman was checked in under the name Fenella Lork from Belgium. She had checked in on the 9th of November and checked out on the 18th of November. Have the police found the identity that they need? They now have a name and a nationality. The receptionist at the hotel that day remembers that the woman had a lot of gold teeth as well as a fur hat. Could that have been the one found underneath the burnt body? The search took the police to a taxi company where one of the drivers told them that he took her to Stavanger Harbour where she boarded a boat that took her on to Bergen. Bergen police checked hotels in that town too, armed with the name and the nationality that the woman had checked in with back in Stavanger. They found no evidence of a Fenella Lork at any hotel in Bergen. They do find that a woman matching the description had checked into the Hotel Rosenkranz under the name of Mrs. Limhofer for one night. Then from the 19th to the 23rd of November as Elizabeth Linhofer from Ostend at the hotel in Hordeheimen in Bergen. Further investigation shows that a woman matching the description stayed at quite a few hotels under these names. Genevieve Lancier from Louvain stayed at the Viking Hotel from the 21st to the 24th of March 1970. Claudia Tielt of Brussels stayed at the Hotel Bristol from the 24th to the 25th of March and at Hotel Scandia from the 25th of March to the 1st of April. Both of those hotels, or all of those hotels, in Bergen. Claudia Nielsen from Ghent in Belgium stayed at the K&A Hotel in Stavanger 29th to the 30th of October. Alexia Zane-Merche from Ljubljana in Slovenia stayed at the Neptune Hotel in Bergen on the 30th of October to the 5th of November. Vera Charlet of Antwerp in Belgium in the Hotel Bristol in Trondheim from the 6th to the 8th of November and then to St. Swithin's Hotel in Stavanger under the name of Fenella Lork as mentioned above. Police are able to find these check-ins because the forensic department are able to analyse her handwriting that was found on the papers of the notebook. The handwriting matched that on the registration cards at the hotels listed. When the passport information used to check into the hotels were given to Belgian police to look up, none matched a true Belgian citizen. Hotels require passports as forms of identity, so the Isdal woman must have had quite a number of fake passports. Now, fake passports are not easy to get hold of and they're very expensive. And imagine back in those days, no phones, no computers. She must have had a lot of money. Either that or she was indeed a spy. The police are now starting to think that this woman was involved in espionage. 
It wasn't such a far-fetched idea. As mentioned, it was the height of the Cold War, and Norway is in a very tricky position on the world stage. Being an ally of the UK and the USA and a founding member of NATO, it also shares a 100-mile border with the Soviet Union. Just over that border is one of the largest naval and military bases in Russia. Because of that, Norway houses a lot of spies from both sides. If this woman was a spy, it would indeed explain a lot. The fake passports, the cut-out labels, etc. If she was a spy, who was she spying for? Police decide to speak to the people who would have seen her last. Hotel workers, cleaners, caretakers, receptionists, everyone. And what they learn confuses them even more. In 2016, the BBC, along with the NRK, the Norwegian state broadcaster, managed to get in contact with some of the people who saw the woman in the days just before she died. They said that her behaviour was not what they might have thought a spy would behave like. Now, I'm no expert here, but you would expect a spy to do their very best to blend in and not stick out like a sore thumb. But Estelle Woman was sticking out like the proverbial sore thumb. She had a habit of moving furniture out of her hotel room and into the hallway in at least two of the hotels that she stayed in. In one hotel it was a table, in another it was a big armchair. Surely that would have caused some questions to be asked by other residents and staff, would it not? Another employee told the BBC that these pieces of furniture would be left outside the room when she was inside the room and when she went out of the room she would put the items back in again. Strange behaviour indeed. Again, according to the BBC, she would often request a room change. People noted that she would often travel alone. This was a practice not undertaken by women in Norway at that time. Uh, too much anyway. But staff noted how calm and how confident this woman was when she was seen out and about. That the names that she used were not just bog-standard names either. These were elegant and very memorable names. Genevieve Lancier, Elizabeth Lienhofer and Alexia zahn Merche. She could have gone for something normal like Sarah Long or Barbara Brown, for example. At least the Norwegian versions. I have to say, sorry to any Sarah Longs and Barbara Browns listening. Your names are anything other than bog-standard. Love you all. But the point is that the names she used are not those that one might use to blend in. Very memorable names. It is pointed out that her way of dressing was memorable too. She dressed very fashionably. Nothing wrong with that, of course, but along with her spicy perfume and super long cigarettes, it would appear to anyone else that this woman was trying to be seen and not unseen. There were occasions where staff would see her with men, this was usually in the public areas of the hotel, like the restaurant, the bar, for example. She was never seen with the same man twice. The staff would observe that the woman and the men that she was with would never speak to one another. Not once. A waitress at one of the Bergen hotels saw the woman with the grey-haired man sitting in silence while at dinner. She passed him a piece of paper which he read, but, she, but he said nothing at all. At a different Bergen hotel, a worker opened a door to find the woman sitting on the bed in front of another man, a blonde man sitting on the couch. Neither people spoke the entire time 
that the housekeeper was in the room and the staff member could not hear any conversation starting up when she left the room. Alfhild Ragnis, a waitress in the Neptune Hotel, served as dull woman in the dining hall and noticed that she was sitting right next to, but not interacting with, two German Navy personnel. Apparently, one of them was an officer. The mystery woman also spotted outside shopping in Bergen with a dark-haired man. A shopkeeper noted that they were foreigners almost immediately and said that the two spoke in a language that she did not know. BBC journalists found out in 2016 that none of these men were interviewed or came forward to police. It was also learned that almost none of these accounts were ever recorded in the police reports. Sounds really odd, doesn't it? I would have thought that the police would have followed up with all of those men, or at least all the reports from the uh, witnesses. There are some suggestions that the woman was a sex worker. That might explain why she dressed the way she did and why she was seen with different men. Investigations did manage to work out the code in the notebook. It wasn't a code at all. It was her own version of shorthand, detailing where she had stayed and at what date. That said, there is one line in amongst all the rest that nobody can work out exactly. The line reads M L two three N M M Could twenty three N mean the date that she departed her last Bergen hotel? It was almost the same date that her suitcases were checked into the railway station twenty third of November. It is the last day that the police know that she was still alive. But what does the ML and the MM mean? It seems they mean nothing at all at the moment. Then there's the autopsy report. It would appear that this woman, who appeared to have been a victim of a mysterious fire, had also taken 50 to 70 phenomal sleeping pills. Phenomal pills had an ingredient in them that a lot of people used to end their lives with at that time. But experts found that these pills could not have been the cause of death because they had not been fully absorbed into the bloodstream. The concentration that had entered the bloodstream was nowhere near enough to have killed the woman. The police give the passport details to Interpol in the hope that some country around the world will have a match. No matches are returned. The last hope that the police have is the gold work in her mouth. Experts take a look and think that the dental work could have been done in southern Europe or maybe possibly South Asia or South America. The police hold a press conference on the 22nd of December 1970 and what they say came as a complete shock to everybody. The commissioner said that they have completely ruled out that the woman was a spy but did not explain how they came to that conclusion. When questioned about the murder, he does not say that it was not a murder, but he does not say that it was a murder. The autopsy concluded that she died from a combination of carbon monoxide poisoning from the fire and ingesting a large number of sleeping pills. The police announced the cause of death was probably suicide. But many in the police force find this hard to believe. How was she awake enough to set herself on fire after ingesting so many sleeping pills? 
And more importantly, who cleaned up all of the evidence afterwards? Many of the police officers did not think it was a suicide at all. And many people thought that it was very odd just how quickly this decision was come to. Again, she hadn't digested enough sleeping pills to kill her. And who is to say that she put the pills in her mouth? Someone else could have easily done that. Could it be that someone had got that something had gone badly, badly wrong for this woman and that her attempt at suicide had failed and ended up as a murder? It seemed weird that the police wanted to seemingly close the case as soon as possible and forget about it. The case is closed and in February 1971, Isdal Woman is laid to rest. Police think that the woman may be Catholic, so her coffin is decorated with lilacs and tulips and the priest conducts a simple ceremony. She is unknown buried in a foreign country with no friends or family present. The police who attended the funeral did so with the highest of dignity and respect, and with that in mind, Isdal Woman is buried in a zinc coffin that will not decompose. They also keep a photo album so that if anyone can prove lineage in the future, they may have it. To this date, no one has come forward. The BBC says that Harold Ostland was one of the investigators that just could not let this go. Something did not sit right with him and found it very difficult to accept that they had to close the case. Osland kept several police documents and his son Tory wrote a book about the Isdal case. It seems the case would remain closed and an answer would never be got. But then some investigative journalists in Norway decide that they will take a look. And they started that in 2016. One of the NRK journalists wants to find tissue samples of the Isdal woman taken from her internal organs. They are found in the basement of the Bergen Hospital and taken for DNA testing. News gets out that this is happening and the BBC publish an article on their website about the case. It goes viral. Hardly anyone has heard of this case and it is agreed that more answers should be sought. The NRK and the BBC joined forces and followed the investigation with a podcast entitled Death in Ice Valley. You can find this on BBC Sounds or wherever you get your podcasts from. The efforts of the NRK and the BBC uncovered new information that cast a very suspicious light on the police case from 1970. It now looks more and more like there is a very big cover-up and it involved the Norwegian secret police. They denied getting involved in the case for a very long time. Then all of a sudden it is discovered in 2002 that they have a file on it. But no one is surprised. No one is allowed to see the file until 2016 when the case is officially reopened. What is found in their file shocks everyone. Enter the penguin. Back in 1970, a fisherman came forward to say that he had seen a woman matching the description given of the Isdal woman. She had been standing on a pier, watching Navy perform missile tests. This wasn't just any missile. This was a guided anti-ship anti missile that had only just been invented in Norway, and it was named the penguin. The fisherman was taken in by the police the very same day that the police had closed the case. 
Recently declassified documents show that the Isdal woman's movements around Norway coincide with the penguin missile test around the coast. Don't forget, she was spotted in the company of naval personnel too. It has also been told that any investigation into the Isdal woman being a spy or something to do with the navy was met with resistance, almost as if someone somewhere really wanted both her and the whole thing to go away. Could she really have been a failed spy? Some months after the fisherman's testimony had been discovered, the test results for the tissue and the teeth come back. It seems from these that the Isdal woman was in fact German. The DNA isotope analysis and carbon dating tells scientists that she was probably born in Nuremberg and that when she was slightly older, she moved to the German-French border. That is discovered by her handwriting analysis. It seems that she has developed a more of a French way of writing. But how old is she? Testing of her teeth puts her at 40 when she died in 1970, meaning that she was born in 1930. Only a few years after this, the Nazi party swept into Nuremberg and of course, the hate that they brought with them wrought havoc on that city, especially for the Jewish people. Could the fact that the Isdal woman had moved away at an early age to the German-French border have been because she was in fact Jewish and was escaping from the hate? Could those facts also explain why she became a spy? And for who did she do the spying? Gunnar Stahlesen, an expert on the Isdal woman, believes that she actually worked for Mossad, the Israeli intelligence service, and she was in Norway tracking down some Nazi terrorists. The fact is that Mossad recruited many women as spies and were known to have falsified a lot of passports, and it has also been found that they had people operating in Norway in the early 1970s. But why would a Nazi terrorist hunter be watching missile tests, or why would she even know about them? It may indeed be that she spied not just for Mossad, but also for the KGB too. In 2005, a witness, a sea captain, told that he saw the Isdal woman running scared into the mountains with two men in hot pursuit. He said she might have been about to speak to him, but seeing the men behind her, she carried on. The man went and told the police about this, but was told the case was beyond the police and it would never be solved. Could the testimony, if true, be further evidence of murder by the Isdal woman's own colleagues, her own spy colleagues? Maybe, but for one problem. He said that he saw her on the Sunday afternoon. The family found her dead body on a Sunday morning, and she had still been alive the previous Monday. If this was her, then the sighting made by the sea captain had to have been made a week before she was killed. As well as that, the spy theory really doesn't explain the sleeping pills. Did somebody force them down her throat? And if somebody went to the extent of clearing up the fire evidence, why did they leave personal uh, belongings surrounding her body in the way that they were? Maybe she was a spy who wanted out. Maybe she planned on taking her own life in Isdalen and someone followed her, hiding out of sight. 
When she fell unconscious after taking the pills, that person doused her in petrol and set fire to her in the hope of getting rid of any evidence that a spy was there. Maybe the answer is more paranormal. Strange things have been known to happen in those there hills of Norway's fjordland. Whatever the reason is for this woman's death, I doubt that we will ever know. These things are kept very well hidden from the public, but you never know, something might come to light. If you have any information on it, or you know, if you know someone that does, do let us know, that would be nice. And with that, that is it from me and another episode of UFOs and other paranormal stuff. Uh, please don't forget to write to me to send me your uh, stories of UFO paranormal stuff or mystery stuff. You know, mysteries are, well, mysterious and that makes them good. That makes them good podcast stuff. And until we next meet, I shall see you next time. It's a bye-bye from me. Take care.